9, we're going to look at a passage where people were challenged to do exactly what Habakkuk in this last song said, to rejoice, to take dominion, to look to the future, even when it looked like everything was, uh, was ended. Jeremiah chapter 29, and I want to read verses 1 through 8. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and, the, and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Amen. Father God, we come before your word, submit our hearts to it, and rejoice in it, even before we have fully... Uh, I heard it uh, explained, and I pray that you would uh, just anoint my lips and enable me to clearly, uh, boldly proclaim this, uh, your word to your people. Give us uh, listening ears and hearts that are open and receptive, and Father, lives that can carry and live it out, that we may not just be hearers, but doers of it as well. Bless us, your people. Prosper them, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. <coughs> you may be seated. Last week, <clears throat> we looked at the relationship of accounting, of all things, to uh, uh, the prosperity that's a part of this series. And uh, there are tools that we have to uh, learn uh, before we're going to prosper in certain areas. But today, what I want to look at is an intangible attitude uh, that I'm calling a dominion attitude that is absolutely critical to dominion. And I think it is uh, absolutely critical to the kind of prosperity that this whole series is driving us towards as uh, we move along. And uh, 
<clears throat> people who uh, have this dominion attitude are people who will press on no matter how many times that they have failed and no matter how many times that they have had uh, losses. I think of uh, William Carey, tremendous dominion attitude after having spent years of time in translation for the scriptures into various languages. Uh, he had all of his manuscripts housed so that they could be printed and the whole lot went up in flames years of work down the toilet and yet his whole attitude uh, was one where he just started right back again and continued on with the same work that he was involved in he did not allow that loss to make him get cynical to get him so discouraged that he gave up on the work that he was involved in right, so i'm not the first one who has failed to back up boy does that hurt <laughs> Dr. Cotton told me, no, you've got to back up, not just in your house, you've got to back up over the bank too. But uh, it really set things back for William Carey. And yet, he had a trust in God's purposes and that loss. And actually, the loss advanced missions far more. And I won't get into the story of why that is. But there's all kinds of losses that we can face. I know a person who lost all of his life savings, not one time, not two times, three times. And uh, it was because of poor you know, financial investing uh, strategies. I think he's learned through all of this. But he got right back up on his feet and he, he went forward again. He believed that God wanted him to be investing. He wanted him not to be burying his talent in the ground, as it were. Uh, it could be as simple as trying to get your book published. Uh, Herbert Schlossberg, some of you have read his book, Idols for Destruction. I didn't realize it before, but he had, he had all kinds of rejections. Almost nobody wanted to even look at his manuscript. It wasn't until somebody interceded for him uh, with Thomas Nelson that he finally got uh, his book published, and it's a, it's a blockbuster book. Uh, Robert Frost, most people know him as a tremendous poet, but early on, the things that he wrote were rejected. Um, Albert Einstein, people say, well, you know, he was well-received in his lifetime. That's true, but early on, he was ridiculed for his ideas. In fact, his Ph.D. dissertation was rejected by the University of, of Bern, and yet he kept plugging on. Now, there are some people who don't have it in them to, to continue to do that, to continue to take dominion after they've had a major loss. They don't have the initiative, the hope, the future orientation, the determination to persevere or to enter into the kind of prosperity that God calls people to enter into. There have been some people who have lost, made fortunes and lost them several times. They get right back out there and they try now uh, they try again and the scriptures do give antidotes to each of the deficiencies that have caused uh, these kinds of people to back away from it we're not going to look at all of those but uh, i think that this this whole area of a dominion attitude is absolutely critical in fact i think it's one of the biggest ingredients to people prospering uh, being prospered by the lord and there are some essentials we need to have if we're to have this dominion attitude the first essential is that we need to be prepared to face losses. And I do have somewhere um, an overhead. Huh. And I also have handouts there. But uh, we need to be uh, prepared to face losses at times. There are a lot of people who have the illusion that Christians can't face losses. And as a result, when they get that loss, they are majorly, majorly bummed out. Uh, I, I've talked to people who say that as Christians, they're, they're going to believe that they will never get ill. 
or that they'll never have a financial setback. God will bless them, and as long as they have faith, that can't fail but uh, to be blessed in those areas. And usually, the people who have been the most vigorous in their opposition down the road to, say, the, the concept of God healing in the present are people who have been on the extreme over there. And they've said, you can't, Christians can't be sick, you know, or if you're sick, you're, it's lack of faith, or there's sin in your life, or something like that. And when they've just been blown out of the water with the Lord bringing a loss into their lives, they've gone way over to the other extreme. They say, okay, God doesn't work at all. And the scripture says, no, be prepared. Be aware that um, God does bring losses into our lives. And we can see that in verse 1 of uh, Jeremiah 29. Now, these are the the words um, of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, it might be thought that the reason these people were carried away into Babylon is they were the worst of the lot. God was punishing them, and the good people were left behind in Jerusalem. And actually, it's the very opposite. I want you to turn with me to uh, Jeremiah chapter 24, and uh, you'll see that the ones who were carried away were actually the good ones, like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Ezekiel. I mean, there were a lot of good people that God sent off, and I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter here. Jeremiah 24, the Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are very ripe, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good, into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And as the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad, surely, thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm, to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places, where I shall drive them, and I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. Now back to Jeremiah 29, verse 17 indicates that the ones who are left behind, who were still in the stock market, so to speak, in Jerusalem, those were the ones whom God was going to judge, and the ones who had been carried away into exile, they were the good, uh, they were the good fig, uh, figs. And it seems a little bit backwards, you know, to the way... Um, uh, you'd think that God would have worked it, but God says, the reason I've sent them off is I love them. I'm going to protect them there, and it's for their own good. We'll see what the good is that he brings into their lives. It's for their own good that I'm sending them into that land. And uh, the, the basic lesson that it teaches me is God's a whole lot more concerned about your soul prosperity than he is about your assets. He is concerned about your assets, 
But if it means taking away your assets so that you will be holy, so that you will grow in the Lord, he's a whole lot more concerned about your soul prosperity than he is the other. And uh, so having losses should not surprise us. If we have an unrealistic attitude toward prosperity, many times we can become uh, bitter, we can become disillusioned. Now your loss that you faced and every one of you, you can guarantee you're going to face some financial loss or loss in some areas of your life, sometime in your life. Your loss may not be nearly as devastating as the loss that these people uh, face. Sometimes it's good to look at the extreme of what they were facing and then extrapolate to the present. Uh, you may have just had um, you know, an appliance that you bought that's a lemon and the company won't back it up and you're really bummed out over what, what, what's going on. Whether it's a financial loss, a family loss, maybe you've invested in your children and your children aren't uh, making good in all of the things you've invested there. Maybe it's um, some, uh, some uh, sickness or some other thing that comes along. Uh, we need to realize Christians can have losses. And I emphasize that, uh, not just for you guys, but I emphasize it for anybody who's listening on tape because there's so many people out there who think if you're a Christian, you're insulated from disaster. I think Job is as clear an example as you could get that uh, you can have major losses and still be loved by the Lord. Now, Job was restored, uh, and we'll, we'll maybe look at that a little bit uh, later briefly, but from a human perspective, Israel had everything taken away. They were taken to another land. They lost all of their goods. Their money was robbed from them. Their kids were taken into the government schools to serve the humanist purposes, you know, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, those guys. It looked like humanism was triumphing everywhere. I mean, in one sense, what they were going through was, you know, ten times worse than anything that we have faced here. Maybe a hundred times. Who knows? How do, how do you measure those types of things? But I think we can learn from them if we realize that in their circumstance, God has good intended for them. Okay, the second point is that God is in control of the loss, and we need to seek to learn from it. We should not give Satan more credit than he is due. And I think Satan probably was uh, very uh, actively involved in some of these uh, things from time to time. But we need to acknowledge God was the one who brought the disasters. God was the one who was in control. And if you look at verse 3, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, Satan was involved. Daniel, I think it makes, makes it very clear. He was involved in these things. He was probably rejoicing. He was having a heyday. It seemed like Satan was triumphing, and he was doing damage to God's people. But God completely turned it around, and he used that exile to really promote the dominion of his people. In fact, when you look at the kind of influence that the Jews had during the 70 years that they were in exile... It is absolutely mind-boggling the degree of dominion and influence they had, not just with the Babylonians, but with the Medes and with the Persians as well. It was really incredible. Um, so God had his purposes in their, uh, their, their social arena. He had his purpose in their own personal life as well because it says that he humbled his people. He drew them close to him. They followed hard after him. It caused them to become uh, more holy. So in effect, these financial losses were reproofs that God brought into their lives to encourage them. And God uses financial reproofs in our lives as well. I've had them. <laughs> and I think uh, most of us, at one point or another, 
have had them. And the reason for the loss may be different from one person to another. For example, Paul said that he had learned contentment through his financial losses. Philippians 4, 11 to 12. In uh, Psalm 119, David said his losses were designed to correct him. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me to have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Uh, when, with another uh, person, it may be that the Lord is helping this person to see that his true riches are more than just his uh, money and his possessions. Uh, the Proverbs indicate that a person who only has a morsel of bread, but he's got a happy home, is far richer than a person who's got lots of food and he's got continual strife. Proverbs 17.1 Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. And it does. Sometimes it takes losses for people to wake up to the fact that their families are more important than some of these other things that they have invested in. Proverbs 13.7 gives this paradox. There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing. I think there's a lot of rich people can testify to that. They say, you know, they ha well, Solomon was that way. His life was empty. Vanity of vanity means emptiness. Uh, so they, they're rich and yet they have nothing and the one who makes himself poor yet has great riches and so sometimes what God does is he takes away prosperity from one area of life so people can learn to be rich and prosperous in another area of their lives with Job it was to test his heart and to uncover the pride that was in his heart and it was exposed uh, it, it took a while to expose it, but it did its work. And when he was able to deal with that, he was given even more wealth than he had previously before that. Let me just quickly list some of the other ways in which finances can be a reproof from God. First, the constant need to borrow money. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 15, 5 through 6 says, Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today, it's only when... He indicates that our soul is prospering, that he's going to prosper us in the other areas. That's basically 3 John verse 2 all over again. He says, Then the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Uh, Proverbs 28:22 indicates God sometimes brings poverty to those who are constantly being involved in get-rich-quick schemes. Uh, they don't want to take the dominion. They're always bypassing dominion. That's not to say that we can't take something when the Lord plops it in our lap, but there are some people, that's what they're constantly after, and they're constantly poor. I've known people that, no matter how many times that they fail and get set backwards, uh, they continue to pursue after that. It's almost a gambling instinct, you know, that, that some of these people have. Uh, according to Matthew 13, 22, God sometimes finds it more effective to bring barrenness into our spiritual life so that we can realize, hey, the God of money is not all it's cracked up to be. It leaves us empty. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. And so whether you're unfruitful financially or you're sterile spiritually, it may be a reproof for the same thing. Ecclesiastes 6 one through two shows that God reproves his people with an inability to enjoy what they have worked so hard to collect. And so the second point indicates our first reaction when we have a loss should not be to get angry at Satan. Okay? I've seen people, boy, as soon as they have a loss, their first instinct is not, Lord, what are you teaching me? Lord, how are you disciplining me? What are you doing in this circumstance? 
immediately they go after Satan. Now, there is a place for going after Satan because Satan many times is involved. We need to battle in spiritual uh, warfare with him. But the first thing we ought to do is we ought to humble ourselves before God and say, Lord, you have taken. You have given. You have taken away. I want to bless your name. I want to learn from you. Please, Lord, help me to prosper spiritually and in every area that you're tr- teaching me in. Now, in the next verses, Jeremiah goes on to tell these Jews not to give up on the future uh, during this time of loss. And it's very easy for that to happen. If a person gets hurt badly enough, and maybe enough times, he may become so fearful of taking risks in the future that he backs off and he takes a present-oriented slave mentality where somebody will take care of him, those kinds uh, of risks in the future. And Jeremiah says, "Uh uh-uh. That's not what I want you to do. I'm wanting you to take the risks of investing all over again. Yes, you've lost everything back then, but even though the Babylonians may treat you as being a conquered and enslaved people, I want you to realize God and God alone controls your past, your present, and your future. And we need to have an attitude with respect to the future that does not give up. So let's move on in um, uh, chapter 29, verse 5. 5 and 6. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. Okay, far from this being a diminishing, a scattering, he's saying, I want to be building up a, um, an increasing number of you and an increasing strength uh, in, in the Israel that's in Babylon. I think this is a vision that the church of Jesus Christ needs to have today. Uh, Rather than um, uh, always expecting to get bailed out, and that's what the prophets in this uh, book were constantly saying. I'll give you an example, but they were constantly saying, uh, within two years, you're going to be brought back to the land of Israel. Don't worry about it. Don't be investing in in Babylon. Don't settle down there. You're going to be out of there quick. And so they were uh, constantly looking for the way out. And Jeremiah, in effect, is saying, I don't want you to be looking for the great big bailout. Uh, Whether it's uh, the king of Israel coming to your rescue or as the prophet said, oh yeah, Nebuchadnezzar's going to die within two years or, uh, you know, the lottery or the rapture. Too many people, I think, look for the bailout. They're not not taking dominion because their view of the future is uh, completely stilted. Now, I want you to contrast what I just read from there with three quotes I'm going to give from very prominent theologians. I won't give uh, their names, but this is so pervasive. You, could, you can see this across the board. In fact, many people take it to the extreme that they don't want to have any children because it's the last days, and if we have children, they might be facing persecution or something like that is what they think. But anyway, here's uh, the first quote. Forgotten is the fact that sin and the curse made it forever impossible for the cultural mandate to be fulfilled in this present world. The world is filled with sin and getting worse, a hopeless situation beyond repair and impossible to salvage. Now, with an attitude like that, who's going to bother to even try? I mean, if that's really what the future was about, I wouldn't try to invest in anything in the future. There's, it's a hopeless situation. Now, that was a Reformed quote. Let me give you a non-Reformed quote. <laughs> Um, without the hope of our Lord's return, what future do any of us have? And he goes on to say, we have no future. The only future we have is to wait for Jesus' return. Now, are you going to be having any long-term planning if 
that's your perspective can you know you don't have a future why plan okay here's another quote christians have no immediate solutions to the problems of our day now in contrast martin luther when he was asked if you knew that jesus christ was going to come back tomorrow what would you do he said i'd go out and plant a tree and you know evangelicals today would absolutely be offended with that it seems so unspiritual plant a tree you should be out there for the next 24 hours you know trying to save as many souls as you can you know or being in he says i'd plant a tree god has commanded us to take dominion this is a part of my service to the lord and i wouldn't change anything in my plans i would be acting just the way i'm supposed to always be acting and that's exactly i think what jeremiah says in jeremiah chapter 29 he says i want you to start taking dominion I don't want you to just be waiting, waiting, waiting uh, for uh, some bailout to, to, to be happening. I want you to, uh, to be involved. And that's why I say eschatology is so important. It does impact your present, everyday living. It does impact that. Um, you know, Christ's command was occupy till I come. What does it mean to occupy? It's not to retreat. It's not to camp out. Occupying land means you're taking over land. And until Jesus comes back in glory, we need to be taking land. We need to be occupying to his glory. And so an optimistic uh, view of uh, the future, I think, is absolutely imperative if we're to have a dominion attitude. Without it, we cannot. Okay, now somebody may respond, well, that's all well and fine if you've got something, but, you know, I just became bankrupt. I don't have anything that I can invest. And point four says we should invest what we have. God's not going to hold you responsible to invest something that you don't have. But everybody, almost everybody, has something that they can, that they can uh, invest. First thing that needs to be invested here is simply labor, what some people have called sweat equity. Verse 5 says in part, build houses, plant gardens. Okay, so if you can't afford to hire people to make money for you and you don't have the money to make money make money for you the only thing that's left is for you to engage in labors to use your skills and uh, a lot of people you know are not willing to work hard in order to uh, take dominion and so they have a hard time with that i don't know who said it but one person said there aren't any hard and fast rules for getting ahead in the world just hard ones okay and labor is one of those hard rules Work, don't try to get bailed out. Uh, don't be waiting for uh, any of the big events, you know, for uh, the, the lottery to come in or, you know, I'll get a payoff one of these days, the, the gambling type of instinct. Don't wait for any of those. We need to be laboring for God's glory. Now, the objection might come. I know people who can't labor. They've got a disability and there is nothing that they can invest by way of labor. And I think what we need to, to do is we need to think outside the box because even your thinking can be a labor. You think of John Bunyan. He was in jail for most of his life, had an utter inability to work with his hands and to do things that other people would take for granted. But he could write. And his people snuck in paper and, and he was able to write books. In fact, if he had waited till he got out of jail in order to start taking dominion we wouldn't have in my library all of the volumes that he has written pilgrim's progress and all kinds of theological works okay he was using he was using what he what he had and it was a, a mental labor now some people don't have any um 
you know, ability to even labor uh, mentally. You know, if you guys are in a coma, you're off the hook uh, this morning. The Lord's not going to hold you responsible for that. But for some people, their excuse is they just fear the future. They fear failure. Uh, you may have seen in the past seven years' worth of work going up in flames like William Carey did. And Jeremiah's response is, start over. Just take dominion. Uh, Jeremiah's command is to use at least what you have. Now, when the immigrants came to America from some of the different uh, countries, many times they complained about the discrimination, but they didn't complain too much. Uh, There was a lot of discrimination in America, but these people competed with the one thing that they had, their labor. They didn't have any money. They didn't have a lot of things. But what they did is they said that they would work harder than anybody else. They would try to work better and uh, they would work for less price and millions of them succeeded. And nowadays, people look at some of those successes and they envy the money that they had, little realizing we can do exactly the same thing that they did. We can use our sweat equity. We may not have anything else, but we've got at least labor that we can, uh, that we can invest uh, to God's glory. Teddy Roosevelt said, I'm only an average man, but I work at it harder than the average man. And that was the key to him. He says, I, I don't have any brains. I don't have anything that other people don't have. I just work at it much harder than other people. That's what he credits his successes to. The second thing that you can invest are the small things that are available to you. These exiles didn't have a lot, but they could find seeds. They could find a little patch of ground, and they could plant it and eat from that patch of ground. I think we need to realize these were not immigrants who brought you know, big cartloads of all of their goods with them. These were captives. I can't imagine that the soldiers did not take all of their gold and all of their silver. from. I can't imagine that they allowed them to take any valuables with them. So many of them may have come just with the shirts on their backs, and yet Jeremiah is expecting them to find ways to scrimp and to say, don't eat all your seed corn. They may have had to go out and do gleaning, but he says, from your gleanings, you've got to set some things aside, and you need to plant. You need to invest in the future. He says, Uh, invest at least the small things that you have. Now, if they had listened to the prophets who said, hey, you're going to be out of here any time. It's imminent. Max two years. Earlier in chapter 28, it's imminent. They would have starved to death. Jeremiah convinced them they needed to scrimp and save and invest in the future. Let me give you another example. I read about a prisoner who was in solitary confinement. Uh, Oh, I I forget how many years it was. It was just years and years and years. And uh, one day, a bird flew into his uh, window, and he was able to capture the bird. And for the next several years, he studied this bird. That's all that he did. And he wrote down all of his findings. He, he, he looked at the dimensions of, the, of the, the bones and how they're all interconnected and the aerodynamics of the wings, you know, as they flapped and how long it took for the bread to go through the, you know, to <laughs> through the animal. He studied everything, and he wrote down a textbook that was used in in biology for many, many years. He used what he had. And we need to think outside our box. We can't just say, well, this is the only paycheck I have, you know. I've only got, you know, X number of dollars to live on. I don't have anything to invest. Think outside the box. Invest the small things that you have. Okay. Uh, The third thing that can be done is to invest in a family. Verse 6 says, take wives and beget sons and daughters. Notice it's a command. Uh, the dominion mandate has never been repealed. Um, uh, without the, the, the wives and the daughters and the, the sons, there's no 
what's it called, where you're multiplying your labor. Division of labor. That's what Gary North uh, talks about. There's many other purposes for it as well, but there's, there's division of labor that's going on there. Now, God gives the, the gift of celibacy to certain people, but the ordinary mandate is something, even in the New Testament, continues. If you look at Paul's admonition to the widows, he didn't want them staying widows and say, oh, yeah, I'd be spiritual, go off to a monastery. He said, no, I want you to get married and I want you to bear children. It continues to be a mandate. And what we are doing is when we have children, we are investing in the future. We say we believe that there is a future and we want to be preparing our children to take dominion uh, in the future. And, you know, all throughout the West, we've got a totally different perspective on this. Um, Europe's a whole lot worse than we are, but our replacement statistic that I've, I keep running across is 1.6. 1.6 people. And the only reason it's that high is because of all of the immigrants, and the Christians, I think many of them help as well, but all the immigrants who have larger families. And what troubles me is that so many of the emerging nations, and maybe it's in God's providence that's working out fine, but they are following America's example on that as well and having tiny families, like uh, uh, South Korea, 1.7, I think, is the average now. The previous generation, it was probably around five or something like that. Now, here's the irony. The wealthiest nations who could afford to have larger families are the ones that are the least likely to have large families. And I think it's just backwards thinking. The scripture says our children are an asset. They're a scarce resource. And we need to be treating them very, very uh, uh, well as, a, as we would any scarce resource, planting into their lives things that will enable them to go beyond what we have been able to do, to multiply our effectiveness. There to be trained and honed as arrows that are shot out of the, uh, out, out, out of the nest. <clears throat> now, these Jews may have been tempted to say, you know, things are so bad, I need to wait. Jeremiah says, don't wait. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, it's not enough to simply have children. We must also invest in the future by preparing our children to invest in a family themselves. Uh, verse 6 goes on to say, And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not be diminished. Now, I could go down a rabbit trail in terms of the whole thing of courtship and parental involvement there. There's clearly parental involvement in how this is all uh, worked out. But don't let your children buy into the lie that big families are a curse. Uh, don't assume that your children are going to want to have big families just because you've had a big family. You need to train your children in that. You need to communicate to them the value of family, a worldview that talks about how this is a tremendous investment. And so there's always something uh, that we can invest. Let's look at a couple of other examples. Verse 7 gives two more ways that we can invest, no matter how poor we are. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Okay, first, first one, it's important to invest goodwill in your community. If you become well-liked, your services are good, you've involved in voluntary projects, you know, in the community, there is a goodwill that you are investing in that community that may over time come back to bless you if God prospers that. So he says, I want you to be investing kindness, investing peace into that community and uh, not isolate yourself from the community. And then the last investment is that we need to pray for our communities. It's Omaha, Springfield, Fremont, you know, wherever it is that we live, we need to be praying for those communities. And that's an investment. That's an investment that we, 
that we are making. Now, what I find interesting is that Jeremiah connects the shalom that the city experiences together with the shalom that we experience. Now, we've already seen that shalom carries a much broader idea than just an inward peace. It's dealing with outward peace. It's dealing with success. It's dealing with prosperity. So he's saying there is a connection between the the, the peace of the city and the peace you're going to have. You should always desire that my judgments be kept away from a city. You should always desire that my peace, my shalom, would rest upon that city. Now, that's very fascinating to me. He says, in its peace, you will have peace. That means there's two things we need to avoid. On the one hand, we need to avoid being revolutionaries who just are delight in tearing down a society. And on the other hand, we need to avoid isolationism, where we don't want to be involved in the community. He says, you need to seek the welfare of the city. That's what God has called us to do. Now, too many times, I think what Christians do is they go to one of the other extremes. They're either beating the city over the head and making the city ticked off at Christians because all they hear from Christians are complaints. We're either beating it over the head or we're just backing away from the city. And they say, you know, they don't help. They don't volunteer. They're not involved in the city. They're not seeking our peace. Why do we need them? And he says, we need to be very opposite. We need to be investing our goodwill. And we need to be investing prayers into that community. That's one of the reasons why I, um, I, I go to all of these uh, prayer meetings uh, in the city. It's one of the reasons why I hobnob with the, you know, the mayor and the council people and with other pastors in the city. It's not because I delight in listening to heresy. You know? <laughs> I'm seeking to invest in their lives. And hopefully, over time, as more and more goodwill and service that is not in any way self-serving immediately eventually the Lord will cause it to fall back and bless and prosper dominion's activities in the city. So there are times when God calls us to make a prophetic call that's tough, that's hard, but it always needs to be in love. Even God's spankings, you know, are in love. But uh, I think we do need to be seeking the peace of the city. It's, it's just an important point. So there's always something we can invest no matter how much we have lost. And that's what Daniel did. Excellent example of a godly person who um, just had tremendous influence. Didn't matter what king took over, he had tremendous influence. And there are Christians like that um, in uh, Washington, D.C. They're in there, whether the Democrats are in or whether the Republicans are in. They have made themselves so invaluable that everybody wants them. Okay, let's summarize where we've been so far, the main points. Be prepared to face losses at times, as it serves God's purpose. Second, we must realize that God is in control and learn from what his lessons are. Third, we must not give up on the future during times of loss. Fourth, we must invest what we have. Fifth, we must have a long-term vision. Now, there are other factors that enter into having a long-term vision, but the ones that Jeremiah lists here, I think, are absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. They're commitment versus escapism, optimism versus pessimism, Confidence versus insecurity. Now, that first component, commitment versus escapism, very, very important. Look at verses 8 and 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Now, why is Jeremiah bringing these prophets up when he's just been talking about taking dominion? See, the word for at the beginning of verse 8 indicates there's a logical connection between the dominion he's been talking about and these false prophets. Well, my answer is that if they were to listen 
to the false prophecies of these prophets, it would absolutely destroy their ability to make the kind of investments that we've just been talking about in the previous, in the previous point. It very much uh, is a, a, a connection. And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel have to deal with these prophets' lies. We're not going to look at all of the lies. I'll just look at one. But they're all essentially escapist in their nature. If you take a look at chapter 28 uh, and verses 10 through 11, you'll have one example. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke off of the prophet Jeremiah's neck and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. And uh, verses 1 through 4, he says the same thing. But there he expands. He says, I'm going to cause all of the Israelites to come back, and it's going to happen any time now. Maximum two years, but it's probably going to happen any time now. And here was what happened. When the people were listening to that, it made them so much anticipating this imminent return to the land of Israel that they weren't focused on the issues of dominion. It completely robbed them of their ability to be focused. And, um, you know, I think any one of us would be in the same situation if you knew that you were going to be uh, leaving for California uh, you know, in May, you probably wouldn't plant corn in April. You know, you would be focusing on the leaving aspect rather than on the on the present. And so, uh, that that first that first point is there's got to be a commitment to the region we're in. There's got to be a commitment to dominion before we're going to have a long-term vision. The second component is optimism versus pessimism. Verse ten. 29 verse 10 for thus says the lord after 70 years are completed at babylon i will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place and it doesn't matter how bad things got in biblical covenantal history biblical prophecy always gave people a hope and it gave them optimism you could not have gotten a worse period of israelite history 70 years in exile that they're going to be and yet he gives them hope he gives them confidence in two ways first of all he says israel's going to be around for 70 years well that's encouraging because it means they don't need to worry about getting wiped off the face of the map you know if they're going to be around in 70 years that means god's going to be preserving us right now so it gives them optimism for the present and then he also gives them transgenerational optimism as well because 70 years is a long time most of the people he was talking to would be dead in 70 years what he's wanting them to look to is to their children's and their grandchildren's lives. You know, if it was all le- if every generation was left with what I was able to do, I would feel very discouraged. But I know, I'm looking and I'm preparing transgenerationally. And he said, yes, in 70 years, they will be brought back. And not only will you not be wiped out, you're going to be in a stronger position. So he gives them, he gives them optimism. And by the way, true eschatology, It doesn't matter which period you are in. True eschatology will always help people. It'll free them up about worrying about the future. It'll help them to focus on dominion. It's no surprise to me there's only one kind of eschatology that has ever been connected with pervasive dominion in history, and it's post-millennialism. It's no question, or optimistic amillennialism, but there has to be that optimism uh, that uh, is present. Okay. Uh, then the third component of a long-term vision is confidence in your relationship with God versus insecurity. And I think Calvinism gives just tremendous confidence. But look at verse 11. 
For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. If you are confident that God is for you, it frees you up to be able to pursue after promoting his kingdom and his seeking his law word, knowing all of you have, the longer-term vision you're going to have. So confidence in your relationship with God, I think, is a very critical feature. So here's three components necessary for long-term vision, and long-term vision is an essential ingredient to dominion attitude. The last major point, I'll be real brief on this because some of you are snoring already. If we are to have a dominion attitude, we've got to have a steward's heart that's willing to seek God's kingdom first. And here's three evidences of it. First of all, verse 12, prayer and the confidence that God will answer those prayers. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Now, disaster can be very discouraging for people. You know, you've, you've been expending a lot of effort. But the person who has a dominion attitude is a person who's just going to get right back in there, and he's going to go to the one who controls all of these things to God. It drives him to prayer. It does not discourage him. It drives him to prayer. And uh, then the second one, is seeking God with all our hearts. Verse 13, you, shall, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Half-hearted efforts won't do. We need to search for God like Daniel searched. We need to search in his word. We need to search in prayer. We need to search at work and, and at home. And Christ promised if we're seeking first, first and foremost, we are seeking God and his kingdom and his righteousness, his law word, then all of these things will be added to us, the prosperity issue. So seeking God, that's a very important one. And then uh, the third one is that they need to persevere. They need to keep at these things until God has fulfilled his promises. Verse 14, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Perseverance. And I think all of these points that we've looked at do have an impact on whether we're willing to take dominion and they impact on our wisdom as to what kind of dominion we're going to take at any given, uh, any given period. So I admonish each of you to ask the Lord to enable you to implement these points so that you can have a dominion attitude. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your, your word that even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of disaster like the Israelites faced there, that you called them with that dominion mandate of uh, marriage, of, of uh, planting, of building homes, of seeking the welfare of the city, of, of increasing and not diminishing. And I pray, Father, that this church uh, would uh, be given by your Holy Spirit's wisdom uh, insight into how we can best take dominion. But, Father, especially, may this dominion attitude pervade our lives. Sometimes it's hard to get our our, our hands around attitude, but Father, we, we desire that we would glorify you, even with our attitude, our perspective on life, our worldview. And Father, may you receive all of the honor and the praise and the glory. In Christ's name, amen.